Ross, how are you? It's great to have you. Hey, Mike, uh, doing very well, thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me on. No problems at all, Ross. I have to say, when I, when I read what, what you've done, I couldn't wait to get you on. Um, you've, you've done coast to coast in the, U, in the US. Um, you've done the Reno Air Races. You've done the Dakotas. Uh, you've done Houston to San Diego. And your biggest one at the moment is you've done a, you're, you're on an expedition to fly a single engine piston aircraft around the world. Um, from what I believe is at the moment, you've done 327 hours flown since leaving. You've done 41,658 miles uh, so far, 30 countries and 174 airports. Uh, yes, yeah, that's right. Um, and actually, those date, those statistics are uh, as of October last year. Okay. Uh, the, the website is still not quite up to date, so I'm working on uh, working on updating that right now. Um, I'm expecting about another another 50 hours, maybe a little more, to have been added to those totals flying around Australia. Wow. That must have been amazing. I'm, we'll, we'll go to the start. And I always ask people the, the, the same question is, how did your interest in aviation come about? Or how did you get into aviation? I think really it was the stereotypical um, small boy interested in aeroplanes story. Um, nobody in my immediate family um, were involved in aviation in any way. But while I was young, I had a fascination with aircraft. I used to spend hours and hours on Microsoft Flight Simulator um, flying here and there. And then once I was at university, I finally meant, got to the point where I'd uh, saved up a bit of money and the exchange rate to the US dollar was particularly good. Um, so I had the chance to go over to the States for a few weeks and uh, got my license and really it just went from there. Brilliant, brilliant. You, you've, as we've said, you've an impressive array of, of touring. It sounds like just bashing out a few circuits doesn't really keep you happy. Where, where did the love of touring come from or, or what point when you had a license did you think, oh, I want to do this and I want to go there and I want to go further afield? So before I even had my license, um, like I said, when I was playing on Flight Simulator a great deal, I, I used to love cross-country flights on there. Not entirely sure why, but I, I set out to fly around the world on Flight Sim when I was about 13 years old. Um, and that was good fun, tracking it on a map and deciding where to go next. Um, and then once I was taking, uh, doing my private pilot's training out in Florida, I really enjoyed the cross-country flying, and I just thought every time I had to turn around and come back, I thought to myself, oh, I wish I could have kept and thought, well, I've got a, got a few months off now. Why don't I just try and uh, see if I can fly across the U.S. and back? Brilliant. <laughs> um, found someone who was crazy enough to rent me an aircraft, and off I went. Fantastic. And what, did, you, did you find it daunting at first? or um, A little bit daunting. Yes, uh, I won't deny that. Um, it, it was about two years after I'd received my PPL. Uh, and in that time, I'd been flying with the University Air Squadron in the UK. And they had given me some, some really good training. And, and that was quite helpful in terms of confidence building. Um, I think the really important thing was that we set off on this flight across America with camping gear in the back. Um, so didn't care where we landed. We knew that we weren't going to be uh, stranded with nowhere to sleep. And we had no particularly fixed agenda. The, the target was reach the West Coast. Um, I had five weeks or so to do it, so we weren't tempted to push on through poor weather or, or dangerous conditions. Brilliant. Because I know a lot of people that get, like, I think I kind of get homeitis when they just push on through absolutely anything, and it, it, it's absolutely not, not fantastic and to see. 
No, no, and it's always uh, such a such a strong influence that get homeitis even now. Um, I find that if I've really been planning a flight for a long time and I'm all prepared and everything's ready to go, it takes serious willpower to, to turn around and say, actually, no, not today. Yeah, hundred percent. I get it with myself as well. It's it's a uh, we had a we had a situation where we're coming back up to France in 2018, and uh, both of us were trying to get home for work. Um, two days in, into the or when we left, we had two days to get home. Um, before both of us were in work and okay. they're moving in so everything was against us and lucky enough now we didn't have to go through any bad weather or anything like that but any little hiccup it would have scuppered our plans and put us into that kind of bracket of I know what you mean go. I, I had the same experience myself after flying down to uh, Tunisia um, back in 2010 coming back through France on my way had to be back at work on Monday um, and the weather just turned and we had to land at the closest airport. It changed that quickly. Wow. Got that stuck there for three days. So on the Monday morning, I had to phone my uh, manager and say, hey, I'm sorry, uh, won't be able to get into work today. Um, my flight was cancelled because of weather. And he said, oh, no problem. No problem. See you when you get here. And he phoned me back about 30 minutes later and said, hang on, didn't you fly yourself? <laughs> I love it. Absolutely. Thankfully, he it. was quite understanding. <laughs> that's good i was gonna say i don't think uh, i don't think my boss would have been quite as understanding about to ring in and say hey i've just been flying myself around france for the last week and uh, i can't get back to work <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> so ross t tell us about your, your u.s coast to coast flight um wh where did you start from yes we started in uh, palm beach which is on the east coast of florida um donald trump kind of country at the moment um, thankfully things were not quite so uh, disrupted back then um, yes and actually I had a, a Michelin roadmap of the US which I used to do my uh, my large-scale planning of where should we go today <laughs> I love it <laughs> and uh, yeah set off up uh, up through Florida and then uh, struck out west from uh, from the top of Florida brilliant um, and and it was really a case of we we'd land at our destination at uh, the end of a day's flying and it was only at that point really that we'd then say where should we go tomorrow uh, and we'd look at what the weather was doing and then we'd pick what looked like a nice flight brilliant absolutely brilliant how long did that uh, journey actually take you from from start to finish um it was about five weeks total um wow. from florida out to california and then back again oh you went back again Yes, yeah, well, rental airplane, you've got to take it back. That's a, that's a <laughs> or, they get, or they get yeah, mad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How many flying hours did you rack up in, in, in that five weeks? Uh, that was 70 hours. Wow. Yeah, they, they, were quite, uh, they were quite flexible about the daily minimums because um, they, they had a very large fleet, which helped so they could let a, let a plane go for a while. Um, at, at the beginning of the trip, I'd thought to myself, well, America's about 3,000 miles across, I think. So let's call it 60 hours return, add 10 hours, and it'll probably be about 70 hours. And in wow. the end, it just coincidentally worked out to, I think, 70.5. <laughs> I love it. It's not bad when you guesstimate and get a 0.5 out. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. Luck of the draw. Love it. Absolutely love it. So how long was it then? You, you finished your coast to coast. How long was it then before you're planning your next adventure? Um, I, I think actually I'd already started thinking about it before finishing that one. We were having so much fun. 
Brilliant. Um, and, and, and really, before we'd even finished, we said to ourselves, right, next time we've got to come back out and we've got to explore the southwest of the US more because that is just a stunning place to fly. Um, the, the scenery, the airport infrastructure, the little fields that you can just fly into and camp on. Um, it's, it's really a, an aviation paradise. Brilliant. I know down the US is fantastic for all that. There's so much you can do out there. And there's a guy on um, YouTube that I follow called Trent Palmer. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> bush pilot. And uh, he's in and out of strips that you've just described and stuff and going out camping and having barbecues and everything. And it looks like a really nice, it's something that's been on my bucket list for, for a while um, that I've wanted to do and some stuff around Florida as well. I don't know if you've ever done the um, shuttle run. Uh, I've flown over it, but I've not done the uh, low level flyby along the runway yet. That's, uh, it's definitely yeah, on my bucket list. I think it's on every aviator's bucket list, isn't it? It's, I think it must be. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. I think. So for th for those that that don't know what the, the shuttle run is, it's basically when you're you're given permission to do a low flyby along the uh, shuttle landing um, facility in Kennedy Space Center. Um, and yeah, like I said, it's something that I definitely really really want to do. So Ross, you then decided you're going to go and observe the Reno Air Races. How did that come about? Yeah, so that was a few years later, um, 2014, I think I did that. Um, and at the time, I was a member of a flying club in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, again, the Reno Air Races is something that I'd always been quite interested in seeing. Um, so I just decided, well, let's, uh, let's do it. Let's fly over and have a look. Um, I had a, a friend who was, lived in the area, a student pilot, and she was keen to go as well. Um, so we pulled our resources and jumped in the uh, club's Piper Arrow and headed out across. Uh, we, we decided that, that because we were flying all the way to uh, Reno, we might as well fly a little bit further and make it another coast-to-coast -coast trip. Um, so we did head as far as California and see the ocean. Brilliant. Did you do that before you stopped off in Reno or afterwards? That was before, yeah. We went down through uh, New Mexico, kind of uh, southern route, and stopped off in the town of Truth or Consequences. Um, which I had seen on my roadmap on the first coast-to-coast flight back in uh, 2007 and thought to myself, I've got to go there one day because it has such a weird name. Definitely. And it turns out it's actually, um, I, I had images of it being named that because of some interesting gunslinger duel back in the days of the Old West or, or something like this. But no, it turns out that they renamed the town to Truth or Consequences in the 1950s, I think it was, um, as part of a competition um, launched by a game show of the same name. It was uh, slightly less exciting. <laughs> Just slightly, but again, if people have never heard of it, it's, you can it's tell still a anything. cool story. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. So uh, then headed to California from there and then hit Reno on the way back. Brilliant. And is the Reno Air Race as exciting as everyone says? It absolutely is. It's uh, great fun. Um, I'm not sure whether I'd go for the, uh, the full week. Um, unless I was really into the racing, mm. but to go for a day or two is fantastic to uh, see the see the machines on static display on the ground, um, see some of the racing. Just the noise of these uh, these aircraft is stunning. <laughs> it's great because um, it, it's the only place where I've ever seen you can get a 10, 20 low level flying airplanes racing each other around a, a field essentially, and they Indeed. vary from anything from warbirds to to jets. Yes, yeah, I think it really is uh, pretty unique in the world, and, well, and yeah, hope, hopefully say, it'll keep going. I don't know anywhere else that does it like that, except for except for Reno. Indeed, yeah, yeah, it's a pretty a very American thing. 
So then you, after that, you decided you were going to go up to the uh, Dakota Mountains um, and do, do a bit of flying around there. That's right. Yeah. So at the at the end of the uh, at the end of the Reno trip, we actually came back and crashed the Piper Arrow at home base. Um, unfortunately, the uh, the landing gear would not come down. Oh no! Um, so that was a fun afternoon, circling for a couple of hours uh, while most of the population of the local town came and lined the uh, airport fence to see what today's entertainment was. Um, so yeah, the, the following, following year, uh, the same friend who, who had been through the crash landing with me, uh, I say crash landing, it was really just a, uh, a gear up landing, pretty straightforward. What did you do? Just shut the engine down and just, just slide it in? No, uh, I kept the engine on until, um, until basically I was in the flare. Um, the, the, I had about 10 police cars there, eight fire engines, um, various other people buzzing around. And I thought to myself, it would be really dumb to shut down a perfectly operating engine on final approach, um, just to have someone then drive onto the runway at the wrong moment and not be able to go around. Agree. And it, the airplane's insured, so the most important thing is, is looking after the occupants. Any landing you can walk away from. Precisely, precisely. But yeah, so then we headed out to uh, the Dakotas the uh, following year in, in a fixed gear Cessna 172. Um, to, to avoid the ribbing from the flying club. Um, with, uh, yes, the, the same friend from the previous year and uh, a friend of mine from university. Um, and we chose the Dakotas really because it was an empty spot on the map where none of us had ever been um, and, and people don't tend to go. So we thought, oh, let's go and see what's out there. Um, and it was a thoroughly interesting trip. Brilliant. Because this is all slowly building you up. Because obviously you're, you're three quarters of the around the world. So I'm taking it every, every time you're you're leaving base and doing a trip like this, you're starting to gain experience for this trip. That's right. Yeah, and and the the previous trips I had done that that really gave me the most experience were my my flight to Tunisia, which I touched upon uh, earlier, and and the following year, 2011, uh, we took a a little nose wheel mall down to Egypt, um, to Luxor in the south. And, and just those experience of flying across international borders into some slightly out of the way countries in terms of GA uh, were worth their weight in gold. Um, and, and those of course led up to my uh, large flight through Africa in 2013. Brilliant, T tell us a bit about that flight. Yes, so um, in early 2013 on, uh, there's an aviation forum, the professional pilots rumor network which i'm sure you're familiar with i saw a posting on there by a, a british senior obstetric surgeon and she was particularly keen to combat maternal mortality in africa during childbirth uh, which was one of the millennium development goals uh, they'd set at the time to try and reduce that uh, but i believe it was the united nations had set those so she was putting together a charity project to travel through as many of the countries in Africa as possible that were doing the worst in terms of maternal mortality, um, provide training to local doctors and mostly to set up long-term links between Europe and the US and then physicians in these more challenging locations to help with training and, and equipment donations and so on. And she determined that really the only practical way to get to all these little remote areas, as well as large international cities and everything in between, was by general aviation. 
Um, initially, she was looking for some advice on what type of aircraft to take and, and other issues she might face. So I stepped in and helped her out a bit with my, my limited African experience at that point. And a few weeks before she was due to set off, she said to me, well, I still don't have a pilot. Will you come and fly it for me? What an offer. So I, I couldn't say no. Um, so off we went for four months. We uh, visited 26 different countries in Africa. Um, at everything from the kind of met metropolis of Lagos down to uh, tiny little villages in West Darfur in Sudan. Um, and, and it was some incredible flying and just an incredible experience outside of that. That's fantastic. And we, we talked to Kerry McCauley, who was a, um, a ferry pilot uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he did he starred on uh, dangerous flights and stuff. And he was telling me a little bit about flying to Africa. We were like everywhere you land, they're always looking for a bit of a bit of a bit of a bribe, as to say, more more added on to the landing fee. Did you find any of that when you were flying through? Much less than I had expected. Okay. Um, it, it was on, only one location that we ended up having to pay a bit of a bribe um, in in Port Harcourt in Nigeria. And even then, we talked them down from a $100 request to $6. Um, <laughs> I, I think a large part of what helped was we were there as a medical charity mission. Okay. Um, and I think in a lot of these areas, people actually would have felt a bit bad trying to uh, shake you down for money. Whereas if you're going through as a commercial operator, then yeah, it's, it's fair game. Yeah, yeah. But when you're turning up and you're actually going out into the community and trying to help... Uh, help the members of the community I, I think you're welcomed generally with open arms and, and people tend to not try and take advantage of you brilliant for that trip are you flying under un colors or anything like that um not specifically we were hosted by the un in darfur um when we went there um and we were flying kind of under the colors of the international uh, gynecological organization um so Pretty much everywhere we went, there were physicians on the ground who were meeting us and helping us out. Brilliant. So it, it wasn't, you, you had the kind of a support group with you as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so in the aircraft, it was, it was just me and uh, this Dr. Webster. Um, but yes, in, in most of the locations, she had made contact in advance with, with local physicians, hospitals and the like. Um, there were a couple of places where really it was just a case of, of turn up and try and figure out what's happening. But most places we at least had someone to contact on arrival. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It sounds like it was it was an awesome trip and, and kind of, you, you helped out massively by, by doing the trip as well. So it was it worked in both favours, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Yeah, it was really nice to fly with a purpose. Brilliant. So now let, let's go on to your current purpose so this is the big, <laughs> this is the big thing this is uh you you're you're flying around the world basically in a, in a single engine piston aircraft that's right how did you get the notion to do this again this really had its genesis back in the days of uh of my ppl and even my uh, uh my flight simulator days um i'd flown around the world on flight simulator so, so once i had my my proper license um it, it was an obvious final step to aim for while i was training I, I got in my head that there were three real adventures that i that i would like to do um, i wanted to fly coast to coast across the us uh, which we spoke about <laughs> um, my, my second aim was to try and fly the length of africa 
um, which I was then able to do with uh, this charity flight, the, the flight for every mother, it was called. And, and the final one was really to fly around the world, um, which, which is about as, as big as you can get when it comes to a flying adventure. Oh, yeah. Um, and I ended up at a stage where my, my job gave me the time to do it. Um, I had managed to uh, obtain an aircraft that would be able to do it. And, and really, I had to seize the moment and go for it. Brilliant. And how much planning was there before you could set off? Because you've, you've done 174 airports already. So you've had, have you had a look into these or were they just a spur of the moment I need to land there kind of thing? A um, bit of variety. So the, the planning really started, I would say, back in 2009, 2010 kind of time when actually I answered an advertisement from someone on this same internet forum I mentioned earlier looking for a co-pilot to fly their Cessna 182 around the world with them. And, and we got quite far into the planning um, before this lady then decided that actually she didn't want to fly around the world anyway, which was disappointing. Um, Very disappointing, I can imagine. But, but, but it meant at least I had a bit of a head start on, uh, I had an idea of what needed to be organized in terms of equipment, in terms of the route, um, all this kind of thing. I, I bought the aircraft at the beginning of 2018, um, really with this trip in mind. Um, in that summer, I, I did a few modifications to it, um, added the, the wingtip fuel tanks, for example and then headed off on a six-week trip up through Alaska and northern Canada. Wow. We, we flew as far north as Eureka um, in Canada, which is about 600 miles from the North Pole. Oh, wow. Um, which is quite strange to be surrounded by snow and ice in August. <laughs> but it was, it was a great shakedown tour for the aircraft and for me to really know, okay, these are the things I want to do to it before I try and take it off around the world. Um, and then, yes, before leaving in May 2019, um, which was the start of the trip, there was a, probably a good year of really intense planning um, in terms of preparing the aircraft and then starting to figure out the, uh, the appropriate stops, working out where there was avgas, um, all the regulations, permits and so on. Brilliant. How did your first leg go? Because your first leg was you, you were crossing the Atlantic in, in a single engine aircraft. That's right. Yeah. Um, first time I'd ever done something like that, but somehow the insurance company was still okay with it, which was nice. Um, I, I met up home, with, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I met up with uh, the same friend from the Dakotas flight. Um, he flew into uh, Canada. Um, we met up in Toronto and then he flew with me. Um, and it was a remarkably smooth trip. The, um, the distances for crossing the North Atlantic are actually not too far. I think our longest flight was six hours. Okay. Um, which by, by usual typical PPL standard is quite long, but compared to the 12, 18 hour flights uh, across the Pacific, it's, it's pretty short. Um, but, but the weather is the real challenge. Um, we got quite lucky. We were only delayed by one day because of weather. Okay. In the end, that was uh, trying to leave Goose Bay in Canada and head across to Greenland. Um, uh, apart from that, we hit a really nice high pressure, which, uh, took us the vast majority of the way without any trouble. Brilliant. And have you got ferry tanks on board the aircraft as well to help people longer distance? That's right, yeah. So it's a, it's a Cessna 182, a 1981 model. Um, it's got 92 gallon, US gallon uh, mains. 
Then we've got another 24 US gallons in the tip tanks. Um, and then I've removed the rear seats and replaced those with a 160 gallon turtle pack flexible ferry tank. Wow. So in total, there's about 20 hours of endurance. Wow. So you, nearly a full day is flying right there. And exactly. And, and really, there is only one leg of the entire trip where I will need to fill all the tanks. What leg is that? That's from Hawaii to California, wow. which is 2,100 nautical miles. And I expect it to take about 17 hours. Wow. I'm going to jump to that for a second. We're going to skip the other phases and just go to the <laughs> for a second because you hear everyone talking about, yeah, single engine pissing across the Atlantic. I have never heard of anyone bigging up a single engine piston across the Pacific, which, though it might be slightly warmer, like you said, is <laughs> a massive mileage. Indeed, yes. Now, single engine piston do fly this route more often than you'd think. Okay. Um, aircraft are ferried to and from Australia and New Zealand um, for, for deliveries, but it's not very common. Um, and, and these days, I think people tend to go around the Pacific Rim a bit more up through Japan, Russia and into Alaska. Um, Avgas availability can be a real challenge, um, trying to get hold of fuel on, on a couple of these little islands in the middle. Um, sometimes they have fuel, sometimes they don't. So it's you're well advised to buy your fuel six months or a year in advance to make sure it's waiting there for you. Brilliant. And then, of course, that, that works out in almost every situation um, other than global pandemic, which suddenly means you've got all this gas sitting on an island in the Pacific and you're not allowed in. Oh, no. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to, to the global pandemic bit. Um, <laughs> Indeed. But so you, once you've made it across the, the Atlantic, what was your next stop? Or where did you stop? Um, so we, I spent a bit of time in the United Kingdom. Um, flying around. Uh, my father actually met me in Aberdeen and then flew down uh, through the country with me back uh, to Kent. Brilliant. Um, and I was then met by my partner and we spent uh, a week or so flying around the UK. Um, and from there headed out uh, to the Netherlands, um, Germany, the Czech Republic, Austria, um, and across then into real Eastern Europe um, to Romania and the Black Sea. Wow, I'd say so. I'd say that was an amazing trip all down through Europe and everything. Yes, yeah, that was really, really nice flying. Um, countries I hadn't been to before, in terms of Hungary, um, Bulgaria, Romania, um, and they were all remarkably nice places to fly. Right. Uh, very reasonable fees, decent airports. Um, so, so I'd certainly go back and I, I'd recommend it to people who were looking to fly a bit further afield. Brilliant. So what, my understanding of it is at the moment that your current situation, your aircraft is in Australia um, and you're, you're in the, the, the US. So wait, how, first of all, how did you get the, the aircraft into, into Australia? Um, so I, got, I arrived in Australia well before the COVID pandemic began. Um, that was September of 2019. Um, spent a bit of time in Australia and then at the beginning of 2020 flew across to New Zealand. Um, and it was while I was in New Zealand that the pandemic hit and everything just had to, to come to a halt for quite some time. Um, I was able to start flying again um, around about August of 2020. 
and I spent a few months exploring New Zealand before the uh, the Australians opened up the uh, border one way, so you could fly from New Zealand to Australia, but you couldn't go back again. Okay. Um, but I thought to myself, well, let's let's go back to Australia. It's such a vast place, and I'd only scratched the surface beforehand. So uh, I decided to go back and, and fly around Australia a bunch more and, and see uh, see more of what that had to offer. Brilliant. Uh, it, it was a good opportunity, actually. There was a little bit of a silver lining out of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to see a lot more of those countries. Brilliant. I was going to say, because when, you, when you've got the time, you might as well use it and not waste it. And if you're putting the hours in the logbook, but also seeing things that people with only Sky Television can only dream of seeing, you know, it, it really adds up. Uh, precisely yeah yeah it's a real it, it, it's a corny phrase but it, it really is a bit of a once in a lifetime opportunity yeah uh so you at what point did you decide i need to go back home and, and leave the airplane behind um it was really i'd always planned well a post pandemic anyway <laughs> planned that i i would come back um for work and family reasons, no later than the beginning of December last year. Um, and, and now, really, I'll, I'll be waiting, I think, until the Pacific Islands open up and I can go back down and, and perform that final section of the flight. So the aircraft is hangered now. Uh, the engine has been properly preserved for long-term inactivity, and it's a bit of a waiting game. Brilliant. And is it our Australian government and all that, they're, they're happy for the aircraft to, to stay there until further notice um no, nobody has said anything to me yet <laughs> so i'm going for a little bit of a, a don't ask don't tell approach brilliant um but but everyone seems to have a bit more flexibility around covid these days um I, and I think they well understand that uh, there's nowhere that it's possible to fly to um so outside of taking off the wings and putting it in a container which i really don't want to do yeah um uh, no, nobody has yet had a problem with it brilliant and how, what's, what's your next leg then? Where, where from Australia, where are you going to head to? So originally, um, I was planning to strike out from New Zealand to cross the Pacific. So the beginning of the trip um, of, of this leg will be slightly different. Um, I'll probably head out of the Brisbane area um, and fly to New Caledonia. And then across to American Samoa and then up to uh, Kiritimati, um, which is also known as Christmas Island. Oh, yeah. Um, there's more than one Christmas island in the world, confusingly. Oh, okay. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and from there up to Hawaii. Brilliant. And then Hawaii on to, on to California. Yeah, then it's the big leg to California. Um, and from there, it's just easy flying through the US. No worries. Brilliant. And where, where's the aircraft base? Like, where, where did you start from? Where's your final stop? I started from uh, Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. So that'll be where I finish up again. Um, it, it's no longer where the aircraft is based, but it's, it is the starting and ending point of the trip. Um, I spent a few years living there, so I have a, a lot of friends, uh, particularly in the aviation community, Brilliant. Uh, which made it a really good, uh, good start and finish point. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, once you start from there, you, you have to finish it as well, don't you? Absolutely, yeah, pretty much locked in at that stage. Yeah. <laughs> 
I remember when um, myself and my dad, we did a Round Britain Michael at Rally in 2011, I think it was, for a BBC Two documentary. We got as far as, we were coming home, we finished the rally, we got as far as into Blundell, just outside Liverpool, and the weather had turned, and we were just, we were hot, nearly a helicopter, we were burning fuel, but not gaining any mileage, so we said, <laughs> Dan needs to be back for work, I need to be back for school at the time, so we're like, all right, okay, um, we'll leave the airplane, but uh, there was that thing of, we, we had to go over together to, to, go and get the airplane to finish the what, what we started and fly it back to our home strip just indeed left that home strip gone on holiday <laughs> got our passport stamped and come back <laughs> and uh, it's like you were saying actually with the GA stuff cross border and everything like that um, there's something great about flying yourself to a different country and having to get out and have your passport stamped there is yeah it's, uh, it, it's a really satisfying thing to do um, yeah Speaking of passports, it's funny crossing the uh, from the US to the yeah, to beyond the UK. I think as far as Germany, uh, only one person asked to look at my passport on that entire route. <laughs> <laughs> I love it because they're all meant to be with customs and everything, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, no, they were remarkably trusting. Um, <laughs> For some departing the Faroe Islands, they they were really keen to see my passport. Um, okay. But but apart from that, no nobody even asked for it. Wow, I, I, that's mad. <laughs> and and nobody has looked inside the aircraft at all throughout the entire trip, apart from a lady in Bulgaria who wanted to take a picture of the instrument panel. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't even official. It was it was just for her own use. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And how long is it going to take you now to finish? I let, let, Let's say COVID's gone in the morning, you're heading back out now. How long is it going to take from when you take off again to when you're finishing Pittsburgh? Yeah. It's going to depend a little bit on how much the islands open up. Um, if it's possible, I'd like to spend a few days on each of these islands to, to see a bit of them as I go through. Because um, it's probably not many times in my life I'm going to fly to Kiritimati in the Pacific. Yeah. Um, it would seem a shame to land there in the evening and just take off the next morning after seeing nothing but a hotel. If um, So I'd expect probably a three-week trip, um, if it's possible, to stop in some of these places. If not, then it would, and, and if the weather cooperated, it would really be uh, probably under a week. Okay, that's that's quite quick. Yeah, it, it's only a few flights. They just happen to be very long ones. <laughs> Over a lot, a lot of wet stuff. Yes. And how are you getting sponsorship, Ross, or how, how are you funding the trip? No, um, so really it's just uh, from savings. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, many years of savings. Um, I've had friends join me for some sections, um, and, and they've chipped in to help with the cost. Um, I, I am ra raising a bit of money through sponsorship, um, and all of that goes to the charity that I'm choosing to support, which is Brilliant. called African Promise, and they uh, they support primary school education in Kenya. Oh wow, what a charity! Yes, yeah, yeah. They they have a very long term view. Um, they're very low overhead. Uh, and I've I've been watching them for quite a while, which is why I selected them as a, a charity to support. But it's very much a case of every single penny that gets donated goes to the charity. None of it is used for funding the trip. Brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. And because it's, it's a big thing. Like if you manage to get the media behind you and stuff like that, you could you could really push this. 
Absolutely, that was the idea. Um, I, I was setting off to do this trip anyway, and I really thought to myself, well, I, I should use this um, to try and, and raise some money for a decent cause as well. Brilliant. Because um, it would be a shame to waste the opportunity. No, one hundred percent. Like like you said, the opportunities are rife out there. Like with the, with the flying and the seeing things, and why not do a, a really really good cause at the same time? Absolutely. When when you get back uh, from from your trip, what what's your plans? Because I understand you you have a commercial pilot license as well. I do, yes. Um, and I, I had always thought to myself, if, uh, if the oil and gas work, which I do um, as a day job, go, goes down, I can go and work as a pilot because cheap oil always means lots of demand for flying. Again, until the pandemic came and they both crashed at once. Um, oh, no. so, so that plan <laughs> was, turned out not to survive contact with the enemy. Um, I can see for the foreseeable future that I'll remain uh, a pilot for pleasure only. Um, but I already have a few ideas about uh, adventures that I'd like to do next. Um, one of which would involve trying to fly to Antarctica. Oh, wow. That would be a good one. It would be uh, very exciting. So we'll see how that develops. Brilliant. And do you plan on using the same aircraft or are you, you looking at all? Yes. Yes. I mean, I've, I've done so much to this aircraft and got it set up just the way I want it to, it's, it's really the perfect plane for this kind of adventure. So I, I think I'll be hanging on to this for a long time to come. Fantastic. I was going to say, I have a little bit of experience with a, with a Cessna 182 and that's a, uh, we had a, we had a skydive one, but I don't know if you're familiar with any, with any jump planes, but they're mainly years old and uh, held together with, with duct tape on the inside. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I've seen a few and uh, yeah, I, I, I try and keep mine uh, in, in slightly better nick than that. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant! You've got, uh, you've got four skydivers clambering around it, wrecking it on you. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I know the skydive ones are usually fantastic mechanically, um, but cosmetically they leave a little to be desired. When you're sitting it for 17 hours, you want a little bit more comfort. I can imagine that. Yeah, we we got a. Oh, it was very funny one time. We had a Cessna two a turbine two hundred six, um, in 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 the parachute club. Of my I was brought up on the on the Irish parachute club and. Uh, Back, I think it was 2008, 2009 time we got our hands on a turbine 206 and uh, one of the lads who was who was training to fly it at the time he was one of our jump pilots on the Pilatus Porter and the 182 and um, he discovered that the rails uh, for the seat, it, it was lovely seat, lovely sheepskin leather you sink into it kind <laughs> of thing and it eats you up um, he discovered that it was the same width of a rail uh, as his car was and he came up with this perfect plan of being able to slot it into the car rather than have the actual <laughs> original car seats in there. Perfect, why not? It's the same when you're taking five seats out of a six-seater airplane, you might as well put them to use. You might as well, yeah. Waste not, want not. <laughs> Brilliant. Ross, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and I wish you all the best with your um, expeditions that, that, that you've, you've got to go on and hopefully when you finish this one we, we can get you on again and, and chat, chat about how your, your last legs have gone. Thanks very much Mike. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan to me and it's been great fun talking with you. Brilliant. And you Ross, have a good one. You too.